0: Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. The Lord loves justice. The upright will see his face. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's an interesting question that the psalmist asks in verse 3. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? David, of course, was asking it in his context of challenges to his kingship and kingdom, but it's a question that's pertinent to today to us as well. When the very foundations of our existence, of our life, of who we are as human beings, of our identity of our very being, are challenged or are being destroyed, what can we do? Certainly over the last number of months, we have witnessed the shaking and perhaps destruction of many foundations. When a gunman attacks two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand and brazenly live streams his crimes, showing how he killed 50 and injured 48 other people all because of his anti-immigrant and racist views. Surely the very foundations of of our humanity are shaken. Imagine for a moment that that would happen here in this building on a Sunday morning. When a Boeing 737 MAX 8 jetliner carrying 157 people crashed shortly after takeoff from the Ethiopian capital last Sunday, killing everyone aboard from 35 nationalities and including 18 Canadians, and then when the entire MAX 8 fleet is grounded around the globe, the world is shaken. And we all wonder about our dependency on technology, and we wonder about the safety of flight. When young athletes need to be on their guard and can no longer simply involve themselves in their respective sports for the fun of it because it seems that they are thereby easy targets for abuse by coaches or trainers or doctors, a fundamental foundation has been shaken. When we discover that our federal government is caught up in the SNC Lavalin affair, an ongoing political scandal involving alleged political interference. An obstruction of justice by the Prime minister's office, surely the very foundations of our understanding of good government is shaken. When the President of the United States takes potshots at virtually everyone in his country or beyond who doesn't happen to agree with him, when he declares a state of emergency on the southern border out of fear for the invasion. And when he consistently foments dissension against the press with his fake news line, we shake our heads and we are concerned because the very foundations of democracy are shaken and we wonder about leadership and we wonder about the future and we wonder about the security of the world and so forth. When earthquakes, fires, floods, hurricanes, and tornadoes wreak their havoc in life, we are shaken to the core of our beings. When we have the perception that crime is on the rise, our basic sense of security is challenged. When we face the death of a loved one, or some debilitating illness, or a loss of employment, or a loss of purpose, or a loss of a stable relationship we experience a shaking of the very foundations of our being, of our life. When we face any one of these sorts of realities, our assumptions about the way the world is supposed to work, at least the way we think the world is supposed to work, are challenged. The Apostle Paul, aware of the shaking of the foundations of life, wrote to his young protege, Timothy, Treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Brutal. Elsewhere, such as in his letters to the Romans or 2 Corinthians, the apostle speaks about the very shakings of the foundations of his life as he was persecuted and as he was challenged on a daily basis, including being stuck with that continual thorn in the flesh. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Indeed, what can the righteous do? Well, Psalm 11 seems to suggest that there's a couple of things that one can do. Both are in verse 1, but I'm going to reverse the order. Taking things into one's hand or finding refuge in the Lord. There's two things we can do. We can take things into our own hands, or we can find refuge in the Lord. The first option is probably much more human and much more natural for us to do, to take things into our own hands. When we are faced with some calamity, it's often, often easier for us to take things into into our own hands and to look out for ourselves. And so we may run for safety, or we make sure that we have proper insurance coverage, or proper medical care, or that we live a risk-free life, or we set up the best security system we can possibly find, or we make sure that we fly only on airplanes that we know are absolutely safe, but we wonder about how many of those there really are. Or we may get angry and begin to blame others for the mess that we are in. Or we may throw up our hands in despair and walk away from the disaster we face, not really knowing what to do with it, but not helping others in the process either. And certainly this was the approach some were telling David to follow in the midst of the disasters that he was facing. Flee like a bird to your mountain. Look at all the arrows that are aimed at you, David, So trust in your own abilities, in your own survival techniques, and run away. Now David, considered the author of this psalm, indeed faced quite a number of challenges to his life, challenges that shook him to his very foundations. As the Lord's anointed to take over the throne from King Saul, David's life was in danger from the very one he was anointed to replace. Saul was jealous of David for a number of reasons, because he defeated Goliath, he seemed to have the favor of the Lord, and so Saul sought to kill David, and basically chased, ended up chasing him all over the countryside. Later on in life, when David was the actual king and firmly established on the throne of Israel, Absalom, his son, rebelled against his father and sought to take over the throne. On more than one occasion throughout the life of David, David's, the foundations of his life were were shaken, sometimes by others, and sometimes because of his own doing, as with his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. The advice that he received from his advisors was, flee like a bird to the mountain, to your mountain." Probably a popular saying of the day referring to what birds actually did. They would swoop down into the valleys to feed, but for their safety, they would hide in the highlands. And they had their own respective mountains and their own little spot where they hid. And if you remember the story of Gideon, then you'll remember that the story opened with the covenant forsaking disobedient people of Israel hiding in the hills and among the caves for fear of the Midianites that were occupying the land. Rather than turning to the Lord for their refuge and strength, the Israelites had taken their lives into their own hands and fled the situation. And so the advisors would say to David, look at the situation you're in. The enemy has got all of its weapons aimed at you. So now put your trust in your own prowess and abilities. You've been there before. You've done this before. You always survived. Take things into your own hands. Save yourself. Flee to the hills. Flee to your stronghold, the place where you are safe. Now, before going any further, let me just say that there are times when fleeing may indeed be necessary in order to save one's life. We need to be honest about that. I think of those who have had, even who have, have, and even now are suffering the ravages of war in places like Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria, to name but just a couple of places. It's okay to flee from war. I think about those who are suffering for their faith. It's okay to flee from persecution. I think of those in the mosques in Quebec City a couple of years ago or this past week in Christchurch. It's okay to flee from a gunman. I think of those who are living with constant abuse in their homes or elsewhere. It's okay to run away from abuse and to look for safety. When life becomes unbearable and our very life is in danger, it may be entirely appropriate to flee and to go to where it's safe. But the advice given in Psalm 11 to flee to our mountain or stronghold is not a faith answer. It's not a faith advice. This is not the answer of the journey that we're on this season of Lent. That's because it's an answer that only sees things for what they are now. It's a horizontal answer. It's the advice that encourages us to put our hope or our trust in in the protection of rocks or hills and any protection they may give, to use the imagery of Psalm 11. It's very easy for us to say, I'm in charge of life. I have things under control. I am secure in my money or insurance policy or investments or in my doctors or in a well-built house or in my technological knowledge or whatever. Well, let me ask you, how's that going for you? When we are encouraged to put our hope or our trust in human institutions or put our faith in a drug that will cure a disease or put our faith in an insurance policy or in gun laws, or in technology, or in whatever it is that we're advised to flee to, we're missing something, says the psalmist. When our foundations are shaking and we are a people who declare that we are not our own but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, then the advice to flee and to put our trust in any of the things suggested just somehow doesn't seem to make much sense. Consider the Lord Jesus. When he was faced with the reality of what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem, maybe he was going to be arrested and beaten and tried and convicted and crucified, but on the third day raised to life, remember what Peter did and said? He took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. It's like, run away, you're good at it, protect yourself. And he showed later at the time of Jesus' arrest that he was prepared to fight for Jesus when he pulled out his sword and he cut off the ear of one of the servants. He was putting his trust in the sword and in rebellion and in human abilities to protect Jesus. But Jesus turned it aside when he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, your thinking is not the thinking of someone with faith. You're not thinking as someone who is part of the kingdom, who belongs to me, and who understands that I am the Lord and I am the King. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus in anguish prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Remove it, Lord. Let me run away from it. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then even later, when the time had come, Jesus prayed from the, from the cross, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he died fully aware that the task that he had come to do had been fulfilled. The season of Lent provides us with an opportunity to be reminded of what to do when our foundations are shaken. And it certainly is not to flee like a bird to our mountain or stronghold, rather it is to confess and to live out of what David confessed even before he was advised to flee like a bird to your mountain. Look at the very opening line of verse 1. David said, in the Lord I take refuge. It's in God that I find my stronghold. That's the confession of faith. It's a tough confession, I know. It doesn't come naturally to us. On the contrary, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, we have a natural tendency to hate God and our neighbor. It's not an automatic given that when our foundations are shaken, that we take refuge in the Lord, we like to go elsewhere and think of other things. And yet in the Lord, that's where true refuge is. Father into your hands, I commit my spirit. And you know, there's a very there. Are there are, as it were, a number of very basic reasons to trust in the Lord, according to the psalmist. The first is found in verse 4, in the very basic confession and understanding that the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord is on his heavenly throne. Yes, there was a mass shooting in Christ's church, but the Lord is on his throne, Despite the shaking of our foundations, Christ is still on the throne. John wrote, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. God is on the throne the sovereign of the universe is ruling. The very one who cares for the sparrows and counts the numbers of hairs on our head. The very one who says we are worth more than a whole flock of sparrows. He's on the throne. The very one who determines the number of stars and calls them each by name, as Psalm fourteen puts it. One forty-seven puts it. The very one about whom we read in Philippians two. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is on the throne, He has not abdicated His authority. It's still a mess in this world, but He is still on the throne. And there's every reason to place our trust in that king. Because that king on the throne is not blind to what we are experiencing. In fact, he sees his people and he examines us and then he also judges. That king on the throne is also a righteous and a just judge. One who will ultimately make all things right and new. And that king upon the throne is one who cannot abide evil or injustice. David had to learn, we often have to learn, that the injustice and the evil in this world do not and will not have the final victory or say. It may seem like it, but they don't. They will ultimately be dealt with by the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. God will avenge and redeem his people and all of creation for that matter. And those who are in the wrong will be judged. And we ought not to take that lightly. Look at verse 5 and 6. The wicked, those who love violence, he hates violence with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. That's a terrible reality to contemplate. Not something we like to think about a whole lot or talk about a whole lot. But the biblical witness is that the king is a just judge. Judge who will judge. At the same time, the biblical witness is that the covenant God, the creator and the redeemer, is a God who favors those whose lives reflect his character and those whose lives are directed at doing his will and who wish to see justice and righteousness flourish in the very land in which they live, all because they know the king as their king. And their Lord. And when we live righteously and justly, why would we run from challenges to the faith or to the cause of the Lord? We ultimately have nothing to fear, for as the apostle writes in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed. And then in verse 7 comes this wonderful promise. The promise of the Lord is this, the upright will see his face. That's the same language and the same promise picked up by Jesus in the sixth beatitude in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Our journey to Jesus leads to seeing God. It's an incredible statement and promise. Imagine that we, you and I, and all who believe will see him face to face, will see God. That's the Lord's promise. Now we see him already at work in, in, in this word, in the creation, as the apostle Paul put it. Now we see him, now we see it about a poor reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Face to face. We shall see him face to face. That's awesome. As one author put it, you and I are meant for the audience chamber of God. You and I are being prepared to enter into the presence of the King of Kings. We better do some preparations. And good preparations for that. And we're going to be in his presence for all eternity, something which begins even now. And such blessedness and the idea of seeing him face to face is inconceivable and beyond our imagination. Nonetheless, it is the hope of all who believe. And that's not hope in the sense, oh, I hope hope that works. But it's the knowledge that it's going to work. The upright, the pure in heart will be in his presence. It's no wonder that they're blessed or happy. Well, let me go for a moment through this. Because maybe some of you are not upright in heart and you don't know this Lord and you don't have this hope of seeing him face to face. How does one become upright or pure in heart? It begins by realizing the blackness and the sinfulness of our hearts. That's why we begin these services with a time of confession of our sin. All we can do is know how great our sin and misery is and then join David in the prayer. He prayed in Psalm 51, Create in me a pure heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Or we can pray as the publican did, God be merciful to me, a sinner. For when we realize our sin, our misery, we will mourn. And then having mourned, realized, and mourned our condition, both possible to do because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we must trust, turn to the Lord Jesus for cleansing and believe on Him and recognize that He is the Deliverer. And upon believing, then we are declared not guilty, we are justified. As some, of us, some of us have learned that's just as if I'd never sinned. That's the state we're put in then. Or as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, by true faith God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I'd never sinned or been a sinner, as if I'd been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. And then once delivered, we're called upon to live holy lives, pure and pleasing in his sight. We're called upon to flee from sin for his glory and honor. We're called upon to work righteousness and justice in our homes, our communities, our cities, our regions, our provinces, our countries in the globe, reflecting the very nature of God. And the result of such a process by grace, and the result of such God-honoring life is that we're going to see him face to face. How wonderful is the gospel. On our journey to Jesus through this Lenten season, take some time to pause and to explore the question. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Is there any reason to heed the advice, flee like a bird to your mountain? Remember the one who is seated on the throne, the one in whom is our refuge and strength. He is the Lord. He is the King. Amen.